The Centers for Disease Control continues to closely monitor an outbreak of respiratory illness caused by the novel coronavirus that's recently undergone a name change. Originally labeled 2019-NCOV for novel coronavirus, it is now known as COVID-19. This was initially detected in Wuhan City, which is in Ubai Providence in China, in December of 2019. On February the 14th, 2020, the American Board of OBGYN released a new article for the maintenance of certification list. So in this podcast, we're going to review those publications so that may be helpful to you if you're doing the annual MOC certification. We're also going to discuss a recent publication from February the 12th, 2020 that was released in The Lancet, which was a very small but helpful retrospective review of pregnancy, and COVID-19 as it relates to possible vertical transmission. Is that a risk? Well, let's cover that now. Early in this outbreak of this novel coronavirus, many of the patients with respiratory illness caused by COVID-19 in China had exposure to a large seafood and live animal market, suggesting animal-to-human transmission. But more recently, cases have been confirmed with no exposure to animal markets, indicating that person-to-person spread of the virus can indeed occur. The first U.S. case patient was identified on January 21st, 2020, and had recently traveled from the involved Providence in China. Globally, reported illnesses in people with this novel coronavirus have ranged from mild, which is no or few signs and symptoms, to severe, including death. These findings are consistent with other coronaviruses, including severe acute respiratory syndrome, known as SARS, and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, known as MERS or MERS. According to the CDC, because the signs and symptoms of COVID-19 overlap with those associated with other viral respiratory tract infections, and given the time of year, common respiratory illnesses, including influenza, should also be considered in patients who are screened for COVID-19. Clinicians should ask, does the patient have fever or symptoms of lower respiratory infection, like cough or shortness of breath? And has the patient traveled to mainland China within 14 days of symptom onset? Or has the patient had close contact with the person confirmed with COVID-19 infection? We'll define close contact in just a moment in this podcast. If a patient meets one of those screening criteria to minimize the risk that other people will be exposed to individuals who may have COVID-19, patients who report having these symptoms should be asked to wear a surgical mask as soon as they are identified and directed to a separate room, if possible, with at least six feet or two meters separation from other persons. Again, that is six feet of separation is ideal. Patients should be evaluated in a private room with the door closed, ideally an airborne infection isolation room if available. Healthcare personnel entering the room should use standard precautions, contact precautions, airborne precautions, and use eye protection as well. After a positive screen and patient isolation, clinicians should immediately notify the healthcare facility's infection control person and local health department. The health department will determine if this patient needs to be considered as a patient under investigation for COVID-19 and be tested for the infection. 
Here are the CDC's clinical features and epidemiological risk factors that put the patient at high risk and should be labeled as patients under investigation or PUIs. As a clinical feature, that's fever or signs and symptoms of lower respiratory illness like a cough or shortness of breath, and any person, including healthcare workers, who have had close contact with a laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 patient within 14 days of symptom onset. The other clinical feature that places a patient as a PUI, or patient under investigation, is a fever and signs or symptoms of lower respiratory illness, like cough or shortness of breath, and a history of travel from the Ubai province in China within 14 days of symptom onset. The third clinical feature or category is fever and signs or symptoms of lower respiratory illness, requiring hospitalization and a history of travel from mainland China within 14 days of symptom onset. Now remember, these criteria are intended to serve as guidelines for evaluation and testing. Patients should be evaluated and discussed with public health departments on a case-by-case -case basis for possible COVID infection. Here's a clinical pearl. For initial diagnostic testing for COVID-19, the CDC recommends collecting and testing upper respiratory swabs, that's nasal pharyngeal, and oropharyngeal swabs. Now, if the patients have productive coughs, then sputum collection can be done as a test of lower respiratory infection. Induction of sputum, however, is not indicated. Specimens should be collected as soon as possible once a patient under investigation is identified, regardless of the time of symptom onset. Unfortunately, no vaccine or specific treatment for COVID-19 is currently available at present. Medical care for patients with COVID-19 is supported. Persons with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 infection who are hospitalized should be evaluated and cared for in a private room with the door closed, ideally, once again, in an airborne infection isolation room. Of course, home care and isolation may be an option based on clinical and public health assessments for some people. Those isolated at home should be monitored by public health officials to the extent possible. All right, here's another clinical pearl. What does the CDC call close contact? Well, close contact is defined as being within approximately six feet, that's two meters, or within the room or care area of a COVID-19 case for a prolonged period of time while not wearing recommended personal protective equipment. Or it's a person who's had direct contact with the infectious secretions of a COVID-19 case, like being coughed on, or having other respiratory secretions come in contact with the person while not wearing recommended personal protective equipment. Okay, when we come back, let's continue this discussion focusing on the CDC's interim clinical guidance covering clinical presentation and the clinical course of COVID-19. Here's a clinical pearl. The incubation period is estimated at about five days, but there's a 95% conference interval of about four to seven days. Frequently reported signs and symptoms include fever, which is the most common at 83 to 98%. Cough follows in prevalence from 76 to 82% and myalgia or fatigue at 11 to 44%. Sore throat has also been reported in some patients early in the clinical course. Less commonly reported symptoms include sputum production, headache, hemoptysis, and diarrhea. 
the fever course among patients with COVID-19 is not fully understood and may be prolonged and intermittent. Clinical presentation among reported cases of COVID-19 vary in severity from asymptomatic infection or mild illness to severe or even fatal cases. Now, some reports suggest the potential for clinical deterioration, here's a clinical pearl, during the second week of illness in one report among patients with confirmed COVID-19 infection and pneumonia. Just over half of patients developed dyspnea, a median of eight days after illness onset. So remember that clinical deterioration can occur during the second week of illness. Remember these numbers. ARDS, or acute respiratory distress syndrome, can develop in 17 to 29 percent of hospitalized patients, and secondary infection can develop in 10 percent, between 23 to 32 percent, and that's a clinical pearl, of hospitalized patients with COVID-19 require intensive care for respiratory support. Again, that's 23 to 32 percent will need intensive care for respiratory support. Some hospitalized patients have required advanced organ support with invasive mechanical ventilation at about 4 to 10%, and a small proportion also have required extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, but thankfully that's only 3 to 5%. Other reported complications include acute cardiac injury and acute kidney injury. Among hospitalized patients with pneumonia, the case fatality proportion has been reported to be as high as 15%. But remember that this estimate includes only hospitalized patients, so there could be some bias in reporting upwards. The CDC notes that risk factors for severe illness are not clear, although older patients and those with chronic medical conditions may be at higher risk for severe disease. Nearly all reported cases have occurred in adults, and in one study of 425 patients with pneumonia and confirmed COVID infection, 57% were male. Approximately one-third to one-half of reported patients had underlying medical comorbidities, including diabetes, hypertension, and cardiovascular disease. Before we get into the February 12, 2020 Lancet article describing COVID-19 and pregnancy outcomes, a quick word about clinical management and treatment, although we've kind of touched on this earlier in the podcast. Remember, there's no specific treatment for COVID-19 infection, and clinical management includes prompt implementation of recommended infection prevention and control measures, and care is primarily supportive. But regarding corticosteroids, corticosteroids should be avoided unless it's indicated for other reasons, like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation or septic shock, and that's because there's a potential for prolonging viral replication, which has been seen in MERS patients who received corticosteroids. On February the 12th, 2020, The Lancet published a clinical review by Chen et al., which was a retrospective review of medical records of COVID-19 infection in nine pregnant women. So let's be very clear here first. We need a lot more information about COVID-19 infection in pregnancy and the true risk of vertical transmission, but we just don't have a lot of data. So this recent publication from February the 12th from The Lancet is at least a start, but although it's retrospective and only includes nine pregnant women, we have to remember that this is very early and very preliminary data. 
For this retrospective review, clinical records, laboratory results, and chest CT scans were retrospectively reviewed for nine pregnant women with laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 pneumonia. Now, these were maternal throat swab samples that tested positive and who were admitted to the Chinese hospital between January the 20th to January 31st, 2020 in the infected Providence. Evidence of intrauterine vertical transmission was assessed by testing for the presence of the virus in amniotic fluid, cord blood, and neonatal throat swab samples. Breast milk samples were also collected and tested from patients after the first lactation. The nine pregnant women were all in their third trimester and all underwent cesarean section. All patients had a history of epidemiological exposure to COVID-19. The age range of the patients was 26 to 40 years, and the range of gestational weeks at admission ranged from 36 to 39 weeks and four days. None of the patients had underlying diseases like diabetes, chronic hypertension, or cardiovascular disease. One patient, however, had gestational hypertension since 27 gestational weeks, while another developed preeclampsia at 31 weeks. Both of these patients were in stable condition during pregnancy. Seven of the nine patients presented with fever without chills, but none had a high fever defined as a body temperature greater than 39 degrees Celsius. Patients' body temperatures fluctuated within a range of 36.5 to 38.8 degrees Celsius. The two patients with a normal body temperature before C-section both had postpartum fever. Other symptoms of an acute respiratory tract infection were also observed with four patients having a cough, three having myalgia, and two reported a sore throat, and two indicated malaise. Additionally, one patient showed obvious gastrointestinal symptoms. Another patient had shortness of breath and preeclampsia. However, none of the nine patients developed severe pneumonia requiring mechanical ventilation or died of COVID-19 pneumonia. Pregnancy complications that appeared after the onset of COVID-19 infection included fetal distress in two of nine patients and premature rupture of the membranes in two of the nine. Laboratory data showed that five of the nine women with COVID-19 pneumonia had lymphopenia and others had slight elevations in ALT and AST, which has also been reported in non-pregnant individuals with COVID-19. All nine patients had a chest CT scan. Eight patients showed typical findings of chest CT images, which were multiple patchy ground glass shadows within the lungs. For testing of the amniotic fluid, amniotic fluid samples from patients with COVID-19 pneumonia were obtained via direct syringe aspiration at the time of delivery. Cord blood and neonatal throat swab samples were collected immediately after delivery in the operating room. Additionally, breast milk samples from patients with COVID-19 pneumonia were collected after their first lactation. Now, here's an important limitation of this very brief retrospective review. The researchers did not collect samples of vaginal mucosa for shedding in the birth canal. That prevented them from analyzing whether COVID-19 could be transmitted during vaginal delivery. So while this information was helpful regarding C-section and vertical transmission, it tells nothing about the possibility of vaginal transmission because of cervical secretion contamination. What is reassuring, though, from the limited data is that nine live births were recorded. No neonatal asphyxia was observed in the newborn babies. All nine live births had a one-minute APGAR score of 8 to 9 and a five-minute score of 9 to 10. 
amniotic fluid, cord blood, and neonatal throat swabs were tested and all were negative for the virus. Additionally, from six patients, breast milk samples were taken and tested, and these also were negative. Based on these very preliminary data, the authors stated that the clinical characteristics of COVID-19 pneumonia in pregnant women were similar to those reported for non-pregnant adult patients with COVID-19 pneumonia. Findings from their small group of cases suggest that there is currently no evidence for intrauterine infection caused by vertical transmission in women who developed this infection in late pregnancy. Of course, this is very preliminary and much more data is necessary, especially when infection occurs in the first or second trimester. All right, podcast family, that wraps up our quick review from the CDC and from The Lancet covering COVID-19. Much more data is necessary before we draw any firm conclusions regarding COVID-19 infection and pregnancy. I remember when Zika was first on the scene, it was thought to be only vector-borne and not person-to-person and definitely not by sexual transmission. Well, that proved to be wrong as sexual transmission of Zika was later confirmed. So this is definitely a developing story, but this is a good place to start. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you in another episode of Clinical Pearls.